Welcome to another sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont, where you will hear messages designed to help you learn more about God, growing your love for God and others, so you can go and live your life driven by faith. When was the last time you made a decision? In the Bible, after wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, the Israelites were given a task to follow, but over time they fell short and eventually did not stick with the plan. Doesn't this sound like our relationship with God? Some of us would say yes to God's decision, but we would eventually not stick with it. In the next few weeks, as we dive into the book of Judges, we hope you will enjoy the message as we find out how to make sure we stay on our task and not break the cycle. About two years ago, about two years ago, uh, I, I finished off part of the attic in my house. It was built when the house was built. It was built so that you could finish off uh, that piece of the house into another room if, if you wanted it. And so uh, a couple years ago, I, I planned it out and decided to finish half of it uh, into an office and half of it into like a playroom for the kids. And uh, so, so I did that and, and finished off that, that room. Um, and well, let me, just as I hear myself saying that, let me rephrase that for a moment, because uh, I, I'm, I'm telling you that I did this a couple years ago. I, I finished off the attic, but I, I can't help but think that if my wife was here, and unfortunately our, our two-year-old has been sick the last couple of days, but if my wife were here and she was sitting in the front row, she would be clearing her throat right now and looking at me. In fact, I can hear her through the camera as she watches the live stream at home, and I could hear her saying something like, what do you mean you finished off the attic? What do you mean you did it? Because uh, I also work, and I contributed to finishing off the attic. And by the way, who figured out what kind of carpet to have? And who found the carpet company? And, and who helped with the planning? And who did all that? So let me just rephrase what I just said, okay? I'm going to back up a little bit if I can. A couple of years ago, my wife and I together, we finished off the attic in our house. And we planned it, and we did it. However, I, I have to admit, if... If other people were here, they might think differently. In fact, uh, Joe Frenny, who's a part of our church, his family's a part of our church, and he's usually sitting somewhere over here, but for some reason, uh, he thinks that, that he deserves to go on vacation with his family some weekends, and they're down in Florida. Uh, Joe, if Joe was sitting here, his company did all the carpentry work and all the plastering work. So if I told you this story, and I said, my wife and I, we finished off our attic, Joe might be sitting here. In fact, he might be watching down in Florida. Probably not. But he might be sitting here, and he'd say to me, something like, uh, what do you mean you did it? What do you mean the two of you did it? It was my guys who came in and did all the carpentry work. We did all of the plans. We did all of the plastering work. We did all of the painting. Electricians came in and they did other work. HVAC workers came in and they did other work. And an entire uh, different company came in and put in the flooring. So let me just back up for a moment, okay? A couple of years ago, my wife and I financed the finishing of our attic. And we got a ton of help from a whole lot of other people to do the rest. Isn't it funny, and I think we all do this, isn't it funny how when we think back on what we do in life, we can easily maximize the role that we play in events and minimize the role of other people. I think we, I think we just do it naturally. If we don't think about it, it just happens. 
we get to graduation. We graduate high school or we graduate college and we say something like, I did it. And we write it on our cap, I did it. And, and we, we celebrate the accomplishment that we made. And we can often ignore the hours that parents and other family members and teachers and mentors have poured into us so that we could get to that point. We can often ignore that someone else helped pay the college bill so that we could have that graduation. And in that moment, we declare, I did it, but really it was a group effort. And it's so easy, isn't it? When we think back on things, you have the project at work and you're telling someone about the big project that was finished at work. And you said, let me tell you what I did at work. And the reality is it took multiple people across multiple departments and a team within your department to finish off that whole project. But when you're talking about it to people, it's so easy. And I don't think we're necessarily malicious about it. It's just how we talk. So easy to say, look what I did and minimize the role that other people play. We talk about raising our kids or raising my kids. And Sometimes when we talk like that, we actually unintentionally, I think, minimize the role that so many other people play, an important role in bringing up children, the role that people in the church play and other family members play. It's really a group effort, but we can talk about it like we're doing it all ourselves. And I think that just happens naturally, where when we go to talk about something like me with my attic or something that happens at work, it's so easy just to say, look what I have done and maximize my role in it and minimize the role of others. And I think we all do that. But when we do that, it can put us in, a, in a, a dangerous headspace, can't it? Where we start to think about ourselves more highly than we ought to, and we forget, we forget how dependent we are on other people. And it really can become dangerous in our relationship with God. Where God does something in our life. And we actually end up thinking to ourselves, look what I have done. And we maximize our own role in it and we minimize God's role in it. In fact, God gives us a story in the book of Judges that we're going to look at today that I think is largely a warning to us about what can happen when we maximize our role and minimize his role in our life. The person we're going to look at today is Gideon. And if you grew up in church, if you grew up watching all the the cartoons, the church cartoons like I did, and you grew up going to vacation Bible school, and you grew up in Sunday school, you probably have heard the story of Gideon. And my guess is you've heard the story of Gideon, and it ends with Gideon is a hero of the faith that you need to be like. And that's partially true. But Gideon's story... It doesn't end very well. And you might be surprised to hear that. If you only have heard the victory in Gideon's story, and you've never heard the end of Gideon's story, you might be surprised to learn that it doesn't end well. In fact, Gideon's story ends up with people worshiping idols, and he had over 70 sons. He had 72 sons. And one of his sons kills 70 of his other sons. That's how his story ends up. And so we're going to take a look this morning at the entirety of the story and say, what is God teaching us? And how does a man who was used for great things by God end up leaving this legacy of destruction? 
as we get into the story, we're going to notice something here. And we're going to notice that uh, we're, we're seeing the same exact cycle, that if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you, we've seen in the book of Judges, we've seen this cycle over and over and over again. And it's the same thing in Gideon's story. And the cycle looks like this. The people disobey God. There's discipline from God. The people are in distress and they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. And then in this pivotal moment where the people could become more like the people God wants them to be, they actually decline and they get worse and worse. In fact, when we get into next week and we get into Samson's story, that's another Sunday school hero you may have heard about before. When we get into Samson's story next week, this cycle is pretty much gone. In fact, the people have descended so far that, that this whole idea of deliverance and discipline, it just kind of becomes this, this, this mushy thing that's difficult to discern. But this is the last story in the book of Judges where we see the cycle clearly. And you can see it right at the beginning. Look at Judges cha- uh, chapter 6, verse 1 right here. The people of Israel did what was evil. That's the, that's the disobedience. In the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. That's the discipline. And I'm actually, Mike, I'm going to jump to verse 6 if we can, if we can do that, um, of, of chapter 6. And Israel, so here we go, they were disciplined through the Midianites. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And then here's the distress. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And now here's the story of God's deliverance. And this is the part of Gideon's story that you might be familiar with. But if you're not, that's okay. We're glad that you're here. And I'm going to tell it to you. It's three chapters long. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it to you. But I will tell you part of it. God comes to Gideon. And Gideon, when God, when God finds Gideon, in fact, he comes to him as, through an angel. When the angel of the Lord finds Gideon, Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat. And you would, might ask yourself, you know, maybe you're not familiar with the winemaking process, but it would be odd to thresh wheat in, the, in, the, in a wine press. Why is Gideon hiding in his wine press, threshing wheat? Well, the reason is that one of the ways the Midianites terrorized the Israelites was they stole all of their food. And so Gideon here has this wheat for himself and his family, and he is hiding out in his wine press, threshing the wheat so that his enemies, the enemies of Israel, don't see him doing this and steal the food that he needs for himself and his family. And while he's doing this, an angel comes to him, and the angel says to Gideon, Gideon, hasn't God said that you're going to be the one who leads the Israelites out of captivity under the Midianites? And Gideon, he looks back at the angel and he says, I think you have the wrong guy. In fact, he says exactly what you might say or I might say if an angel showed up and said, hey, didn't God call you to lead all the people into a great victory? I think if, if I'm being honest with myself and if maybe if you're being honest with yourself, you would look back at the angel and be like, oh, what, what address were you given? Because I think you've come to the wrong place. I think you want two wine presses over, perhaps Gideon was thinking. And so the angel, the angel says, no, 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 you're, you're the one. And Gideon says, you don't understand. I, I'm the least, my family, we're the least family in our tribe. In our whole tribe, we're, we're the worst, right? We're the black sheep of our tribe. And he says, and in that family, in that clan is the word that Gideon uses, I'm the least of the family. So you've, you've mistaken me for someone who's supposed to be powerful because you've come to someone who is the, the lowest in a family that's already the lowest in our tribe. And the angel says, no, 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 Gideon, I'm at the right place. We don't really make mistakes like that. 
I'm at the right place. And God has called you to do this. And Gideon says, well, I'm going to need some sort of sign. So Gideon goes and he gets meat and he gets some unleavened cake, unleavened cakes, some uh, dry bread, and he puts it out on a rock. And the angel of the Lord touches the food with, the, with his staff and it is consumed by fire. And Gideon says, okay, I believe that you're from the Lord. And the angel says, here's what you need to do first, Gideon. You need to go and destroy all the altars that your father has set up to false gods. God's name is Baal. And he says, you need to go destroy those altars. So Gideon says, okay, that's job number one. Destroy the altars my dad set up to false gods. But Gideon, he's a little nervous about this still. Mr. Least of the families, least of, the, least of his own family, which is the least in his tribe. And so he goes at night and he destroys these altars at night when no one can see him. And the people wake up the next morning and they are not happy. In fact, some of them want to kill Gideon for what he has done. But the crowd kind of subdues and they, they let him go on his way, but they're still very upset. And so Gideon is kind of emboldened a little bit more by this, the, the sign from the angel. And now he's taken down the altars and they didn't kill him. And so he starts to gather together men who are going to go with him to fight the Midianites. And he, he puts out this cry and he blows a trumpet. And the Bible says that about 32,000 men come and gather with Gideon to form this militia, this army that's going to go and try to defeat the Midianites. Well, our guy Gideon, like you and like me, he sees these 32,000 people, and then he looks up on the hillside, and he sees the Midianites and the Amalekites that are with them. This is like, this is, this is uh, seasoned warriors in the ancient world. And he's looking back at his 32,000 sort of ragtag bunch that he's called together and have agreed to go. And then he's looking up on the hill and he's seeing these, these amazing armies. And he's saying to himself, There's, I, I, need, I need another sign. Before I go and do this, before I send all these 32,000 people and myself into certain death, I need to hear more. And maybe some of you, you've been around church for a while, you know this part of the story, right? He puts out sheep's wool. He puts out a fleece on the ground. And he says, okay, God, in the morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, so all the dew from the night is on the fleece and the ground is completely dry, I will know that you are telling me to take these 32,000 people that don't look like much and go fight those people who are a whole lot more than us and know what they're doing. So Gideon wakes up. And what do you think? Fleece is wet, ground is dry. And Gideon, emboldened, goes and fights the Amalekites and the Midianites. No, that's not what happens. Gideon says, that was impressive. Thanks for that. How about one more? I'm going to put the fleece out again. And this time, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know that this is the real deal. And so Gideon goes to sleep and he wakes up and the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. Now, let's, I just want to do a little side note here on the fleece. Because if you're, in, if you're familiar with what gets said in, in church culture, Many times people, if you're trying to decide whether or not God wants you to do something, someone might say to you, well, put a fleece out and see what God does. But I think we should note here that this fleece is an example of God's grace, not Gideon's faithfulness. Gideon knows what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to take this group of 32,000 and go fight those people, but he's scared to do it. He doesn't want to do it. So he keeps asking God for more signs before he goes. And let me just make a note, because I think this is important for me, and it's, imp it's important for all of us. 
Some of us are sitting here this morning and you know that God wants you to do something. He has called you to do something. But you keep hedging your bets a little bit. And you can, you can make it biblical by being like, I'm just putting fleeces out. Well, these fleeces are, are not Gideon being a model for us and an example for us. This is Gideon being nervous and scared. And God's gracious enough to continue to give him signs. But it might have been better for Gideon to go and just do what God wanted him to do in the first place. And maybe you're sitting here today and you keep, I'm going to keep praying about this. I'm going to keep seeing if God wants me to do this. But in your heart, you know exactly what God wants you to do. Just go and do it. So Gideon, finally, after these next two signs, he's ready to, he's ready to, to finally do this thing. And there's this pivotal moment where he turns to his 32,000 and he says, okay, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to take on these mighty warriors. And God looks down at Gideon and God sees something that's coming that he's got to speak into. And he says to Gideon in chapter 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. And Gideon had to be like, what are you talking about too many? We only got 32,000 and look what's up on the hill here. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. God says, I see what's coming here. If I let you go with these 32,000 people and you defeat the Midianites, you're going to look in the mirror and be like, look what we did. But I need to do this in a way that, you, that when it's all said and done, you will look to heaven and you will say, look what you did, God. So he's like, you're not taking 32,000. And here's how we're going to weed them out. He says, Gideon, say to the people, if you're scared, you can go home. So Gideon turns and he says, God says, if you're afraid, you can go home. And 22,000 people leave. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Gideon? 22,000 people walk off. Now, I'm actually impressed that 10,000 people stayed. I, I, I hate to admit it, Gideon might have been halfway through that sentence and I would have been, I would have been on my way. So 22,000 people leave. And then God says, still too many, still too many. And so he says, Gideon, when the army goes to take a drink, the, the men who scoop up water with their hands and bring their hands to their mouth and lap the water like a dog. It's an interesting way to do it. I, I agree with you. It's an interesting, interesting way to determine this. But those are the men you get to fight with. And can you imagine Gideon? Gideon probably just wishing, wanting to tell people, hey, cup the water with your hands and bring it to your mouth, all right? And Gideon watches as only 300 of his soldiers drink that way. And so he sends... 10,700 people home and keeps 300. And that night, God says to him, take your 300 men, Gideon, and go defeat the Midianites. And Gideon, he must have looked scared because God said to him, I can see that you're scared. So here we go, Gideon. One more, one more sign for you, buddy. Take your servant. Go down into the Midian, go up into the Midian's camp. Go see the Midianites. Go hear what they're talking about. So Gideon and his servant, they sneak into the, Midian's into the Midianites' camp. And they're there in the middle, and they overhear, he overhears one soldier telling another soldier about a dream that he had. This is like a movie scene, isn't it? Gideon and his servant hiding in the midst of the camp, overhearing, you picture that, overhearing this conversation. And the one soldier said, I had the worst dream. And I'm convinced that this dream means that God has already given victory to Gideon and we are in big trouble. Well, Gideon hears that and he hears that the Midianites are already afraid and he is finally emboldened to do this. He goes back to his 300 men 
and he splits them up into three groups of 100. And he gives to each man a torch, a jar, and a trumpet. And he says, this is what we're going to do. We are going to surprise the Midianites in the middle of their sleep. When I give you the signal, blow your trumpet, break your jar, hold up your torch, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so you picture yourself as a soldier in the Midianite army, and already these rumors are spreading that Gideon's going to win this battle and you're in trouble. It's the middle of the night and you're dead asleep. And all of a sudden, in the middle of a quiet night, I mean, think about the ancient world. Think about being out camping, how quiet that is. There is the blast of 300 trumpets at once, and you look up, and around your entire camp, you see torches, and you hear the sound of shattering jars, and you see the fire, and then you hear a number of people yell, for the Lord and for Gideon, and you can't tell how many people are surrounding you, but it sounds like it's a lot, and the Midianites, they they erupted into chaos, and some of them even killed one another, but most of them began to flee, and Gideon and his men were emboldened by this, and they started to chase them, and Gideon went and got reinforcements from the other people of Israel, and he said, come on, we have the Midianites on the run, and God God gave the Israelites through Gideon an amazing victory, and they defeat the Midianites. In fact, Gideon himself goes and he kills the kings of Midian, and God delivers his people. It's a great victory. And it would be great if the story stopped there. It'd be great if that was it. But look what happens at the end of Gideon's life. It's in chapter 8, verse 22. This is what happens. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Basically, they're coming to Gideon and say, Gideon, be our king. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, So basically, Gideon takes all of the gold that they stole in this battle, or that they collected in this battle, and he turns it all in. And then look what happens in verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. That means all Israel worshipped this piece of gold. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. I mean, this is an interesting little story, isn't it? The people come to Gideon. They're like, Gideon, you've given us victory. You should be king. And Gideon says, I will not be king. My son will not be king. God is your king. And then in the next verse, he makes an idol. He makes an ephod, which would be a piece of clothing that the priests of Israel would have worn into the tabernacle. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to make, but he holds it up in his town. And he directs all of Israel to take all the praise and glory that they should be giving it to God, giving to God, and give it to this idol. It's a weird turn of events. 
And the question is, how does it happen? Well, I think when you look at the story of Gideon, this thing begins to happen in his heart. Where he maximizes his own role in his story and minimizes God's role. And when you minimize God's role in your story, it is so easy to become outwardly devoted and inwardly divided. When you minimize the part that God plays in your life, when you look at your life and you look at all the things you've done well and the career advancements that you've had and the state of your family and the house that you live in or the apartment that you live in or the car that you drive and you, and you equate it all and you say, look what I have done. When you maximize your role and you minimize God's role, you can very easily become outwardly devoted but inwardly divided. And I think that we see in Gideon's life that's exactly where he was. If we were to talk to an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, and we were to ask her, we were to say to her, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as you begin this company? Well, she might say to us, the worst thing that could happen is that I fail. And that's how most of us would think. The worst thing that could happen when you start a company is that you fail. But isn't sometimes the worst thing that could happen to us is that we succeed? Because if you fail, at least you would be humble and you might even cry out to God and ask for his help. But when we succeed, there is such a tendency to look at what happens and just say, look what I have done to maximize our role and minimize God's role. It's so easy to do. And Gideon does it in this story. You can see he's, he's divided the entire time. He's, he's divided when he asks for the sign of the meat and the bread. He's divided when he says that I'm not the guy. He's divided when he asks for the fleece sign by two. He's divided when he needs to go into the camp and hear it. He's even maybe divided when he tells them to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Many commentaries wonder, commentators and Bible scholars wonder, do you think that's God's real command to Gideon? to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That'd be very unusual in the Old Testament for God to say, hey, throw your name in there. Gideon names his son Abimelech, which means my father is the king. So it's weird, isn't it, that he would say to the people, no, 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 I won't rule over you and, God, and my son won't rule over you, uh, but God will rule over you and then have a child and name him my father is the king. He has a large group of wives and concubines, which is very kingly behavior in the ancient world. And so even while Gideon is very outwardly devoted at the end of his life, he's very inwardly divided. And I'll tell you what can happen. When you are outwardly devoted and inwardly divided, you become deceived and you become deceiving. Gideon's kind of like the musician that writes all the songs and lives like it's all about them, but then gets up on stage and thanks God for the Grammy. That's Gideon at the end of his life. Outwardly saying, this is God's work, but inwardly saying, look what I have done. In fact, I'm going to make an idol from all that we have collected in this battle, and the people will worship it and remember what we have done. And so Gideon deceives the people. But he's deceived himself, thinking that he's doing exactly what God would want him to do and not seeing anything wrong with saying outwardly, God is your ruler, but creating idols that the people would worship. And it ends up creating a devastating legacy 
for Gideon and for his family. That son of Abimelech, my father is the king, he actually becomes king after this story, after murdering 70 of his brothers. And so despite what Gideon said, I won't be your king, my son won't be your king, he lives very differently. And he ends up being deceived himself and then deceiving the people. And when you and I maximize our role in our stories and in the victories that God gives us, and when we minimize God's role, we do the exact same thing. We end up deceiving ourselves and saying, hey, this is all about God. But really, it's all about us. And we deceive other people because they look at us and they say, wow, what a great example of what it looks like to follow God and be a Christian. But the reality is, the reality is, is underneath it all, we are someone very different. And the challenge here, the warning here in Gideon's story is eventually that's going to lead us to a very bad place that's going to be harmful to us and it's going to be harmful to the people around us. If you've been around church for a while, I've been around church for a while. It's so easy to play the game, isn't it? It is easy to play church. We can do what we want outside of church, and then we come into church, and we know what to say. If you've been around for a while, you learn what to say. And in fact, this is one of the things that people that aren't in church really dislike about church. And I agree with them, and I bet you do too. That the, that the fact that we can so often say that it's all about God, but live like it's all about us, is really harmful to the message of the gospel, harmful to the church, and it's harmful to us as well. And so I would, I would encourage you to think through this morning, where, where are you playing church where we're outwardly we're devoted to God, but inwardly we're very divided? It's a challenging question for myself too. Where am I outwardly devoted to God, but the truth is inwardly in my heart I am divided, where I'm maximizing my role in the story and I'm minimizing God's role in the story. It's a dangerous place to be, but we can find ourselves there. Especially when things are going well. We walk in and someone says, hey, I heard you got a new job. And we say to ourselves, yeah, praise God for that. And on the inside, we're like, well, I mean, I did 10 years of work and I did my resume and I networked and I got this job myself. Someone says, hey, I heard you're feeling better. And, and we say, yeah, praise God for the healing. But on the inside, we're like, I had to take the medicine and I had to go to the doctor and I had to do the physical therapy. I had to do all the work. And we end up maximizing our part of the story and minimizing God's part of the story. It's a dangerous place to be. And all we do is end up deceiving ourselves and we end up deceiving other people. That's why we ought to be very careful that we're not like the crowd in this story, elevating people to places that belong to God. You see, it might be easy to sit here this morning and say, oh, pastor, good news, this message isn't for me, so I'll just check out for a while because I'm never the one that God uses. I'm never Gideon in this story. Well, you're at least the crowd in this story. And the crowd after the victory comes to Gideon and says, we want you to be king. The crowd says, listen to how you speak and how you lead. You must be in the place that's reserved for God. You rule over us rather than God. And you and I ought to be very careful because it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to look at people that God's using and speaking through. So easy to see people that God might do great things through or miracles through. And to elevate them to a position that's only reserved for God. When we do that, 
because of how slick it looks or how well the TV show is produced or because of, of how powerful the ministry is. When that person becomes the person of worship and takes the place of God, all we're doing is deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. We have to be careful about that. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid it? It reminds me of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus was talking to a bunch of religious people named the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. You know what Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees and the religious leaders was? That they were outwardly devoted to God and inwardly divided. That they maximized their story and God's story in, 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 the, in their lives, but minimized God's role in their lives. That was Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees throughout his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of your cup and then the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Jesus says, this is what your life is like. Your life is, looks like a cup that looks great on the outside. It's like a cup that, that you've cleaned on the outside, and all of us know how to do this. We know how to do this. We know how to play the part. We know how to look a certain way. We know how to smile. We know how to play the game with other people. And Jesus says, this is, when you're outwardly devoted to God but inwardly divided, you're like a cup that's very clean on the outside. Could use the updated church logo, but otherwise very clean on the outside. He says the reality is, on the inside, though, the cup is worthless. A, clean, a, a cup that's clean just on the exterior is a worthless cup. Because if the cup on the inside is filled with all sorts of stuff you would never drink from or use, the cup itself is, is of no value. It's no good. You're just deceiving yourself and deceiving other people. And Jesus says, you want to you fix all this? Stop worrying about what it looks like on the outside. Stop just focusing on cleaning up all of this to impress everybody else and maximizing your role in the story, minimizing God's role in the story. Be involved in the work that God does, the work of cleaning out what's in the cup so that the cup actually becomes useful. And if you and I want to avoid being deceived and deceiving other people, if we want to maximize God's role in our story so that we don't end up with a legacy that is ungodly, then we got to participate in this work of cleaning the inside of the cup, not just worry about making the outside looking as good as it possibly can. In fact, Jesus would say it this way. You want to avoid being deceived and being a deceiver? Just do the dishes. Actually do the dishes in your life. Take some time to clean the inside. Well, how do you do that? Two things. The first thing is this. Just like we talked about at communion, you need to come before God and ask God to forgive you for the sin that's in your life. It's called repentance. It's exactly what we talked about in communion when we said that Jesus Christ went to the cross, shed his blood that you and I might receive forgiveness. You come to God and you ask him to forgive you. And the second thing that you and I have to do is daily participate in the work of cleaning the inside of the cup. And that work is done by God's spirit living inside of us. The fancy word is sanctification. That's becoming more like Jesus across our life. That every day we're a little bit more like him. 
We're not perfect, but every day that we walk with him, we become a little bit more like the person God's created us to be. And you and I have to choose to participate in that work and to maximize God's role in the story and minimize our role in the story. Because otherwise, it's just us cleaning the outside of the cup. But if the inside is going to become clean, if we're going to become the people that God wants us to be, if we're going to live a consistent life where outwardly we are devoted and inwardly we are devoted, then we have to participate in this work work of confessing our sin to God and waking up each day and saying, okay, God, this is about you and your work inside of me. As I go into the office today, this is about you and your work inside of me. As I go into the classroom today, this is about you and your work inside of me. As I'm at home today, this is about you and your work inside of me. Not what I do, but what you do in and through me. And every victory that I have, every good thing that happens to me, this is your blessing in my life, not something that I have done all on my own. And if you do that, you will live a consistent life and become more and more like the person God's created you to be. We invite our worship team forward as we close this morning. And I just invite you, if you would, to take a moment and to bow your head and close your eyes and just think about this with me. And I'm not going to take a lot more time. I know I talked a long time this morning. I'm not going to take a lot, more, a lot more of our time. There's a long story, the story of Gideon. And I think this is an important lesson that God teaches us through it. So I'll just ask you fairly pointedly. Where in your life are you outwardly devoted to God? but inwardly divided? Where in your life are you to your own harm, maximizing your role in your story and minimizing God's role in in your story? Where are you taking credit for the things that God has done? Where are you deceiving yourself and others? We serve a God who is so gracious and forgiving. A God who's willing to give Gideon chance after chance after chance to listen to his word and obey it. A God that's willing to forgive you and me over and over and over again. So what is the sin that you need to repent of today? What is it that you need to bring before God and confess? He'll forgive you. He'll clean the inside of your cup. And how do you need to start participating in the work of God's Spirit in your life to keep that cup clean? What can you do to remind yourself that as you leave the door in the morning and you head to work or school or as you spend your time in your house, it's not about what you get done, it's about what God gets done in and through you. How can you remind yourself that this is about the Spirit's work in and through you? God, I thank you for your grace this morning. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you use us in spite of our own failings. I thank you that you will give us sign after sign after sign and be gracious unto us as we try to understand and obey your voice. God, I pray for those places in our lives, those places in my life, God, where there is sin. Lord, I confess to you this morning that I need your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you give it so freely. 
And God, help me each and every day, help us each and every day to live by your spirit, to participate in the work that you are doing, that our cup might be made clean so that we might be able to live consistent lives and lead others, not to worship something other than you, but to worship you, that you might receive glory and you might receive honor and we might be the people you call us to be. Pray it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As we close this morning, let's stand together and let's give God the worship and the honor that he is due. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.